So this morning we look to uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we begin another major section in the final days of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning I wanted to read uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 13. But we will place special focus this morning as we introduce the section on Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 5. So we'll begin to read, and then we'll, uh, we'll look into what it means. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very expensive, or I'm sorry, very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. You will, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my for uh, burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. May God bless the reading. Of his word. This, uh, this section begins a shift. A shift not only in the ministry and the life of Christ to this point, but a shift of the entire uh, gospel, uh, gospel writing itself, according to Matthew. The narrative takes a turn because now Jesus is concerned with the final days that correspond to his earthly ministry among his disciples. But also, when we speak of a shift, we also speak of fulfillment, because in these events, there is the fulfillment of all that has transpired to this point is essentially going to be the fulfillment of prophecy, the culmination of the Old Testament and all the covenants, and also the fact that God has fulfilled what he has willed to accomplish before the foundation of the world. And so we're moving in that direction as it relates uh, to this narrative. But this particular section deals specifically with what Christ has said in the parables before. Because in verse 1 it begins when Jesus had finished all these words. And so we have spent the last few weeks demonstrating how the parables fit together, the common uh, the commonalities in the parable as it relates to judgment, as it relates to uh, 
According to Matthew's Gospel, God making distinctions as to who belongs to his kingdom, uh, those who do not belong to his kingdom, all that is in the parables. And now we're beginning to see somewhat of a fleshing out of what Jesus has been saying, because now you will see uh, for yourself who belongs to the kingdom and who does not by way of uh, how Christ is essentially treated or mistreated as we move to the end of the gospel. But specifically, what Jesus has been as the perfect shepherd, as the true shepherd, he has been carefully, patiently, patiently, uh, patiently compassionately moving his disciples toward not only the end of his life, but toward what they need to do, their responsibilities as they will carry forward the gospel proclamation of their Lord. And so the disciples needed to be prepared for the end. They needed to be prepared for the last things, but they also needed to be prepared for the end of the Lord's earthly ministry because that is where they take up the mantle. That is where their ministries essentially will begin, and that will spell uh, the beginning of the new covenant itself, the New Testament. But it is all directly tied to their need to be prepared for what is about to take place. And this is why Jesus is telling them. He's telling them for the case and cause of preparation, of encouragement. Not simply giving them information. We don't look at, uh, at Christ in the gospel accounts with pity. As if things are getting away from him. And now he has to reveal some kind of disappointing message to his disciples. Not at all. What Jesus is telling them is that this is all the fulfillment of divine prophecy. And in being the fulfillment of divine prophecy, he's explaining to them their role. And we see that as we begin to just push forward uh, up until the very point of Jesus's arrest. But also as we have looked back all the way back to the very beginning of uh, Matthew's writing by the divine author uh, through the human author conveying the Beatitudes, conveying the parables, the signs, the wonders, everything to this point that Jesus has accomplished was to demonstrate the fact that he has come to redeem the elect of God. That he has come to purchase a specific people. That in Matthew's overall theme, the purpose for which this gospel is written is to demonstrate that he is the son of David, that he is also the son of Abraham. That he is David's Lord and he is Abraham's Lord. And that God has not forgotten his promises and certainly has not forgotten the Christ of whom he gave for sinners. And so there is the need to be prepared for what is about to take place. And in the immediate sense, after they were given all the things they needed to know concerning the end times, he's now beginning to deal with specifically the crucifixion, the crucifixion. His death upon the cross, and after that we know from our vantage point, his resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive. The disciples then in verse 2 are warned after Jesus finished not only speaking to them in parables, but laying out the timeline of the end of days. If we look at verse 2, after verse 1, in verse 2 he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. That is very direct. The disciples in verse 2 then are warned that after Jesus not only speaking to them in parables, 
that this is going to take place, but they're warned that there's a timeline that's coming. One that they have to be aware of. That there is a prophetic conclusion to the events at hand and to the very life of Christ. And it is fitting then, in verse 2, he gives his own end times uh, prophetic name from the Old Testament. Well, why? Because he's fulfilling the covenants of the Old Testament. For he says in verse 2, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This has huge implications on the fact that he is now about to fulfill the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily become obsolete in the sense that it never existed, but now the better covenant is about to overtake and take place beyond the old covenants. It is no accident that Jesus would also be handed over for crucifixion. It's no accident, one, because, again, it's not as though circumstances have gotten away from him. He knows that they're going to take place, and he's telling his disciples beforehand. But also, he relates it to the Passover. He relates it to the Passover. So it's no accident that he relates what is about to take place and him being uh, handed over for crucifixion, that it's directly related to the Passover. And thus we would ask, well, how is it related to the Passover? And in fact, later in the chapter, in the scripture we'll read this morning as we enjoy uh, the fellowship of communion together, the Lord will initiate his supper. He begins his supper, the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord's Supper does explicitly, not symbolically, not hyperbolically, but explicitly, out in the open, for all to know, it serves as the fulfillment of the Passover. That the Passover feast has now come to its conclusion because of the one who is the great Passover lamb. Therefore, he offers himself up, as is stated in uh, verse 2, because he's going to begin his Lord's Supper, which will serve as the last Passover feast. But there is also a change that's taking place in between these very few verses. There is a change. And that change is one that we must be aware of. Because there's a change in respect to the covenants. That now that which is considered the old covenants are now being made complete because of who has fulfilled them. And so there's a change in the covenants. There's a change in what's about to take place in the future. That the synagogue it's, itself is now given way to the Lord's church. That it's not an extension, the synagogue uh, or the Lord's church is not an extension of the synagogue. The Lord's church is a fulfillment of all that, uh, of all that the sons of Israel enjoyed in the synagogue. That that has been fulfilled in Christ and him being the head. And so you see this change in respect to the covenants. So in the temporal sense, the new covenant is coming. Here we are, Matthew 26, the new covenant is coming. And it says to us in Scripture that in order to be the executor of a will, in order for a will 
and testament to be initiated, one has to die. And in the case of Christ, we're talking about the eternality of the new covenant. The fact that it has eternal benefits for the elect of God and that they will inherit eternal life because of what Christ has accomplished to enjoy the new covenant benefits for all eternity. And so you have all these glorious promises about to be initiated. This is not a time of depression. This is not a time to look upon the end of our study in the Gospel of Matthew as we will end it in the coming days and weeks to look upon these last events of Christ with some kind of overburdened sorrow. For we know that he's alive. We know that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. We know that he's King of Kings, that his name is exalted above every name. And so because that is the case, we look upon these events as victory, as a victorious account of the church's foundation. But also, we can't escape this fact either, that there is an air of judgment. There's an air of judgment that's about to take place on many individuals. In this text, there will be an indictment. People will know where they stand relative to who Christ is as we get to the point of those who are planning to kill him. But we also know that God will use the minds and the actions of wicked men to achieve eternal good. And they will be judged for the wickedness they do. But the eternal good here is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for sinners. For the elect of God. And so this is what Jesus is saying to them. He's pointing them to the end of the entire, the end and fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. In places such as Leviticus. In places such as what took place in the tabernacle. That Jesus has come and he is now the fulfillment. All of those things pointed to him. The fact that they have failed, the sons of Israel, demonstrating before us in this text that they have failed to adhere to the Mosaic Covenant, the conditions of it, that they have been disobedient, that to this point they have only erected forms of a godless religion that claims to have affiliation to the God of the fathers. And now, for some of them, there will be mercy. But for most of them, there will be judgment. And so, we see the events of intertwined with the eternal uh, good, the, the plan of God, the redemptive plan of God, we see the wickedness of men. And in no way is God the Father the author of their wickedness. Nor does he participate in their wickedness at all. By his all-powerful perfection, what you see of him is that he's going to use their wickedness for his own ends. What is his ends? Eternal mercy. His goal is eternal goodness, eternal benevolence to the elect by the cross work of Christ. And he's going to gather to his son a people, a people that are going to worship him forever and ever. 
But to what I'm saying about this wickedness, it's looming, it's lurking. And we see it in verse 3. Look with me there, if you will. Because after Jesus says what he says, he doesn't begin to speak about the Romans. He doesn't speak about the Roman Empire. What he's speaking about are those who are supposed to be protectors of God's glory and his word. Worshippers of his son. And so the theme of even treachery in the verses ahead is certainly before us. Because they betray the very things they were supposed to protect. It says in verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together, verse 4, to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. This was a conference, a conference of men, a confederation of men. Not unlike many of today's conferences, but a conference of men, a confederation of men dressed in holy garb, cloaked in religious hypocrisy and pretense, standing on what they thought was holy ground. But they were not planning how to best honor God the Father for the gain of others, for the eternal gain of others. Instead, they were plotting to kill God the Son. And it is not only that they were plotting, but in verse 4, it tells us how they planned to kill him. That this was well thought out. This is what we would call premeditated murder, a premeditated attack. It was a premeditated plan on their part, from our vantage point. But the text begs for us not only to look at these events from our vantage point, because it's scripture. We have to look at it from God's eternal redemptive plan. Because Revelation 13.8 tells us the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. For God's plan to slay His Son, it's tied directly to the redemption of the elect and writing their names in the book of life. But also, understand two very important intersecting points. That not only is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, as it relates to Revelation 13.8, but also his kingdom is established from the foundation of the world. And we see that in the previous chapter. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. And the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit what? The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we see that these are things that we would say are tied directly to divine decree. Even the men standing where they do, believing that secrecy and darkness belong to them to plan and achieve their evil means, that they are walking directly in step with God's plan. In other words, even though these wicked men have plotted, they believe that the use of secrecy by their religious guard and cunning minds, that somehow all of this escapes God's notice. But it doesn't. He's not taken aback. 
He's not out of the loop with regard to their schemes. They fit in his plan as well, even by the judgment rendered to them. But no one overthrows his plan. I think even as the church today, we have to start looking out at the world around us and beginning to begin to think this way. Uh, that even with many of the events that are happening in our modern world, we have to look at the world in front of us and understand God is not taken aback. He's not out to lunch. He hasn't taken a day off. He's not juggling uh, priorities, trying to figure out which, uh, which best outcome can be achieved. He's not triaging situations to try to figure out what needs his focus more than others. That everything that's happening is directly in step with him bringing his son to judge the earth and to gather his elect. Every single event, day to day, moment to moment. And that's the very same thing we see here. Now, many people, even as they relate to what we're about to look at, the arrest, they comment on the fact that Jesus' disposition in the midst of this. But I would say if you really understand the fact that he lived in such a way that he was perfectly obedient to the Father at all times, never setting aside his divinity, setting aside divine privileges, but yet perfect in his obedience. That he himself knew that these events were coming to their proper heavenly divine conclusion. That Christ himself is not taken off guard by the things that are taking place. That he knew that all this for him meant a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And we'll see that contention at his mock trial. But here they're gathered. Here they're gathered. And they plan to murder Jesus through stealth, through secrecy. Because that's what wicked men need. They need stealth, darkness, secrecy. And the contrast here in verse 3 is fitting. Because... As you see, if you tie it to verse 5, which I'll read, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Verse 3 is fitting. You have the elders of the people trying to avoid the people for fear that the people will side with Christ and riot against them. So they're supposed to be over the people. The people are supposed to be entrusted and endeared to them. But they know that they are one policy, one false move against having the people turn on them. They didn't rule the people in love and sound doctrine and the worship and honor of Christ. They ruled them by fear. They ruled them by lying. And when Jesus appears on the scene, it becomes apparent that they have been cheated out of something. And so their reaction will be, should they do this in any other means than by stealth, is the people will react. And there will be a riot which might occur among the people. So here, here, is, here are these lawless men who want to kill Christ trying to avoid lawlessness in their precinct. It shows you the folly of rejecting Christ. 
But also you have to notice with them how the festival was not holy to them. For not only did they plan to do murder, but they also saw the people and their attachment to the festival as a stumbling block for them to do murder. It's too crowded with people. So in order for us to kill Christ, this festival is somewhat in the way. You see how the purposes of their religious practices have been handed completely over to Satan. Sure, they had the form and the substance, the Passover, people still uh, descending upon the land, people still demonstrating a certain connection to religious practice, but none of it really had any affiliation to the God of glory. Because it was during this time that they were planning to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. That they did have a Christless society, a Christless view of what they had uh, hijacked uh, related to uh, the Old Testament. There was no shortage of the annals of religion for them that they would use in order to thwart God's purposes. That that's what they used their religion for. Not to exalt God's purposes, but to thwart his purposes. Because God's purposes were a stumbling block. God himself was a stumbling block for them. It was a stumbling block for their flesh and a stumbling block for them and perhaps a hurdle that they may leap over so that they can assault God's people. And as long as they were able to stay in power with this mindset, they were happy to allow these things to continue. But in their hearts was murder. On their lips was worship. But in their hearts was murder. But nothing happens outside of him seeing and knowing all things. So they operated by stealth in the plain and broad view of God the Father himself, the God of Israel. Here as they stand, however, in the courtyard, and understand this, because I believe this comes out in the, in the uh, lamentation in the Psalms of David, many of the Psalms of David, especially the Messianic Psalms. But understand this, because the same has been said about Judas, and we'll be dealing with him in the coming days. But as they stand in the courtyard, they are not so much plotting against Jesus by the eternal effect on themselves as if there is a benefit to that. By that I mean they think by doing what they're doing, there'll be a benefit to them. For them standing there, plotting to kill him, they'll obviously reap some kind of advantage from ridding uh, him of, of uh, or ridding his existence uh, out of their city, uh, out of their kingdom. So they believe that that's the goal of their plot, that, that that's a noble thing for them to do, to kill Jesus in order to rid him from their society. But if you really look at what's taking place with them, and I appeal to the wisdom of the Proverbs, the perfect divine wisdom of the Proverbs, as they huddle together, and this is true of any people who conspires against Christians and against ultimately against Christ in them, they are plotting against themselves. They're huddled there plotting against themselves. And so people who think that they are successful as they huddle around and attack believers, you're not only plotting against Christ, but you're literally plotting against yourself. 
They are circling around one another, planning their own destructive accommodations into eternal fire and hell. They're making reservations for themselves, is the picture of this. That they're standing huddled in that courtyard, essentially setting up the accommodations of eternal judgment and horrific punishment in hell for their actions. Where do I get that from? If you look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, a section written by divine inspiration, human author in this particular proverb uh, being Solomon. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. And then it goes into the warning of such individuals doing so. And then look at Proverbs 118. You can read all, all that is in between there as a certain helpful study. But if you look at Proverbs 118, look at this. The effect of everything that's said between, but they lie and wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So this is the case with them. And this principle of divine instruction, of divine wisdom, is not changed. It's not different. It's, we're looking at the eternal word of God from the wisdom of God in Proverbs as it relates to a principle that shows up in our text. But here we see so many are not chief priests and elders of the people. And they do all the same by rejecting the only one who would grant them mercy and satisfy God's wrath against them. So they plan their own destruction. They're plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. This is very wicked. These are people who are joined to Satan. And yet nothing they do is outside of the notice of God, it's not outside of the redemptive plan of God. And it is about what they say. For they say not during the festival. Not during the festival. Not during the feast. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. The riot is not pictured as lawful. It's not pictured as something that is the desired result. It's certainly not pictured as something that Jesus himself authorized. There's no nobility in it. It's not attached to the fact that the people themselves are responding the way they ought. Because Jesus did not come to put the world in social upheaval for some political gain. In fact, we temper whatever people may take from this verse in this hour and try to eisegete, read into the text, some reason to be societally rebellious. The fact that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so if they're rioting on his behalf, then they're rioting to preserve interest that he has not himself come to preserve. He didn't come to overthrow Rome by means of the people rising up against it in political upheaval. He didn't come to overthrow the Jews in apostate Judaism at the time in order to establish his kingdom. 
not by the nature of the riot, but to overthrow these kingdoms, it was by the nature of saving the elect to himself. And then at his second return, he is going to overthrow by conquest, by the sword. And it's the same reason as we see what takes place in those hours at the Garden of Gethsemane. When the disciple goes about using the sword, cuts off Malchus's ear, that Jesus warns him. This is not the response of his people. It's not societal upheaval. It's not retribution towards society because his kingdom is far greater and far more powerful than the kingdoms of this world. And the principles of his kingdom operate completely distinct from the principles of the kingdom of this world. And you're beginning to see that because this is very familiar to us in verses four and five. This is the testimony of all wicked men, especially wicked men who build their systems on uh, the, the, the bedrock of the Pharisees. But that there's a religious realization among them. There is a sense that they're attached superficially to divine things only in as much as those divine things lead them to the destruction of Jesus Christ. And you see that here. Because they say not during the festival. Not during the festival. Not this killing him is not a good idea. They're saying not during the festival. Well, why? Not because the festival's holy. But because the people will turn against us. And we're supposed to look like we rule over the people. This is politics. This is politics. And the kingdom of heaven is not a slave to politics. Because what God is not doing, he's not interested in the politics of men. He's not interested in how men feel about preserving themselves or their kingdoms. Because we know that the kingdom in which these chief priests and elders were trying to protect eventually is overthrown from the people they joined to with political interests. That in AD 70, the Roman Empire comes and overthrows them. But again, you have to understand the distinction that the Son of Man is coming in order to be handed over for crucifixion. He hasn't asked anyone to avoid that for him. He hasn't asked anyone to create upheaval in society to make sure that doesn't occur. In the modern sense, as we look at how does this apply to me, he hasn't asked us to stop preaching the cross, to stop proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to come. He hasn't told us to stop, uh, to, to, to stop man in his societal tracks in order to uh, create a better tomorrow. He demands from us the proclamation of his name, of his crosswork, essentially the biblical gospel of our Lord. And so we'll see that. And we'll see in the next few verses, and I'll read them before we close. We'll see what he commends. We'll see what he commends. Let's end our time here as we look to verse 6, and I'll read toward the end of the section. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial 
a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Look at what Jesus commends. He doesn't commend the riot. He commends the worship. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's what he commends. He doesn't commend the upheaval. He doesn't commend the temporal flare-ups because people disagree with the chief priests and the scribes. He certainly didn't commend obedience to them on the grounds of spiritual efficacy. For he had already said, follow me. But he commends those who worship him. And in uh, the narrative itself, he commends the woman who does this in such a way so as to prepare him for his burial. She had her focus on the cross. And we'll talk more about that in the time we have next week.